Well, go to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13 is where we find ourselves today. And it is the story of God's provision of manna and quails in the wilderness. This is probably, I mean, we did the Red Sea a couple of weeks ago. This is one of the, it goes hand in hand with the Red Sea. It's one of the most famous wilderness occurrences of the Old Testament Jews when they received miraculous bread from heaven. Let's read Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to go from verse 1 until verse 36. This will be a hefty reading. Please engage your minds. See the imagery in your own uh, imaginations and follow along with intent. Hear now the word of the Lord God. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. It is now exactly one calendar month since the exodus occurred. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, for what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness like a, like a fine flake thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. That's, that's an, an obvious sentence. They said, What is it? Because they did not know what it was. <clears throat> and so, uh, uh, where are we? Uh, verse, uh, end of 15. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord God has commanded. Gather each of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omar according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omar, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Then Moses said to them, Let not one of you leave any over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now we're going to skip to verse 31. We'll come back to those other uh, portions soon. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed. White and, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all the generations. 
And so as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony of the Lord. Place it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And just for reference, an omer is a tenth of the part of an ephah. Just now we all know mathematically that's how much that was. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. We have today uh, the, 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 the giving of miraculous bread from heaven, but we start out in that all too familiar, terribly painful reminder of what happens here in verse 1 and 3. The Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This word comes up frequently, grumbling, and, and we preached our whole sermon on it last week of how God commands but, uh, and repeats this, this command in the New Testament as well, using this story as an example, do not be grumbling people. Grumbling has as its essence, if we can quickly recap from last week, grumbling blames somebody, and in this essence, in this scene rather, it blames Moses and Aaron. It it blames the spiritual leaders, but as we see in verse 7 and in verse 8, we're told, your grumbling's not against us, but against the Lord. Grumbling always, whoever it blames, it is actually always ultimately blaming God because he's the sovereign who has led us into any situation that makes us want to grumble. So here we are, we've learned that grumbling blames God always wrongly and we must avoid it. But grumbling is also just the essence of ungratefulness. It's this, it's this infantile ungratefulness with, with no faith whatsoever. They are, as we said, Just one month since being delivered from all the plagues, one month since the tremendous rescue at the Red Sea, and where have they been since our last story? They grumbled at the bitter water, God gave them sweet water, and then where did he let them holiday for well over a fortnight? Elim, the oasis in the desert of wonderful pools of water and shade under the palm trees. And so we could be tempted to think that now they're thankful, grateful, mature people, but we reminded ourselves last week that, that if you're thankful when there's plenty to be thankful for, you're not all that thankful. A bitter person can be, can be very sweet in sweet situations. We learned the lesson that they are, they are bitter because as soon as things go wrong, they, they show their bitterness. They start to grumble against God and against his anointed leaders. This, this is going to be, as we, as we said last week, this is going to be the downfall of this generation. God will get to the point in numbers, where they have tested him and grumbled against him and he forgave them. They grumbled against him and they, he punished them but forgave them. They grumble against him and he gives them provision. They grumble against him again and again and again so that eventually he says, because you have grumbled and tested me these ten times, you will not enter the promised land. You will not go into Canaan, but rather your children will raise up. You will all die and they will go into the promised land. This grumbling will be the cause of the death of the people of God who were saved out of Egypt. They were saved out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness because of their grumbling. Their grumbling here today, it would be better to die in Egypt than here in the wilderness, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It would have been better to die there. Yes, that's correct. But you didn't have to die in the wilderness. You're only dying because of this infantile grumbling that they are so committed to. Now look at this 9 through 12. We see here, Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard our grumbling. And then God appears to them in glory. I wonder what that would have been like, because God was always there with the cloud and, and the fire. But something happened to his, his, his manifestation of himself in that cloud, that it became a sense of his glory. It's, it's hard to describe what the Bible means, or to try and visualize what it would have been like to behold glory. But I think one of my favorite explanations Explanations is, or ways of phrasing it is, is an imposing grandeur. 
a, a majesty that is so, so heavy and so imposing that, that it makes you draw back. It, it, it opens your mouth with a jaw-dropping shock. And, and usually in Scripture, it comes with the humans being filled with fear for their very lives, and rightfully so. But the people are gathered towards Aaron, and he says, let's go to the presence of God. And as they turn, there is God meeting them in this glorious, imposing, majestic, doomy, weighty cloud. And he provides for them. Look in verse 12. At twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Was this an undeserving people? Absolutely. Were these a grumbling people that deserved to be slain for their faithlessness in the covenant-keeping God who had never earned their distrust? Absolutely. Did they deserve to be given miraculous bread from heaven and birds that flew into their nets so that they could do the old twisteroo on the neck and put it on the barbecue? Did they deserve that? No. But is God the kind of God who gives to his covenant people only and ever what they deserve? No. God is a gracious, merciful, covenant-keeping, promise-making and fulfilling God. And we see that right now in this scene that God doesn't even, we don't even have a few verses of him, him, him burning in anger against them. We don't even read here a tremendous uh, 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 enraged rebuke against them. What we hear is that God heard their grumbling and though it was unworthy, though they deserved to die for it, he held out his hand in a fatherly love and met their needs. God is a great, yes, he will reach his end and, and his patience is not forever. He will get to his last straw and end up punishing them, but he is gracious, he is merciful, and he is slow to anger. And he so undeservedly just gives them free miracle bread and amazing meat in the form of quails, just flying KFC right into their nets for them right here in the wilderness. A gracious, merciful, covenant-keeping God. But go back to verse 4 and 5. While God is being extremely gracious... While he's being merciful and giving them what they don't deserve, giving them more than they could ever deserve, he does it with a test. This, if we can go back to the analogy, this is KFC served up with a side of testing. While he is going to give them free food, it comes with a test. Verse 4 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Right? There's the test. God is saying, if we can add some meat to the bones of this conversation, it's as if God is saying to Moses, we're, we're a couple of weeks out from Sinai, Moses. We're a couple of weeks out from where I give to you my Ten Commandments. And, and, and on top of the Ten Commandments, I'm going to give you case law for how the nation needs to behave. And then I'm going to give you meticulous ceremonial law so that you know how I am to be worshipped and only how I am to be worshipped. And I'm going to warn you now, it's going to get pretty heated. The, the, the breaking of the commandments in my worship is going gonna, is gonna to uh, 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 deserve the killing of people. Uh, the, the breaking of laws in my nation is going to get my wrath against the nation. In other words, I'm going to require from this nation a tremendous amount when I enter to them, enter in with them to a covenant filled with law. Now Moses... Do you think they will be the kind of people that when they are given tremendous amounts of law, that they are able and willing to enter into it with obedience, saying, our wisdom is folly. Our ways lead us to death, but wise and good and gracious is our God. Let us give ourselves wholly to obedience to him. In other words, Moses do you think they will take all my freebie miraculous bread 
and also receive my word? That's the question. To ascertain whether that will be the case or not, God gives them a simple, very, very basic test. Will they walk in my laws? Let's just see if they can do this. Gather food every day, just for a day, and on the sixth day, gather double. Pretty basic. And here's Moses probably thinking, all right, but where's the test? Like, what well, aren't we going to really stretch them? What are we going to do? And God's going, no, I, I think that'll be enough. Let's just, let's just see how they go with this before we upgrade the, uh, the, the, the standards of the testing. That's his test for them. Will they be able to do it? Very simple. Gather enough just for each day, eat what they have, and then wake up tomorrow and do the same. And then on the sixth day, the Friday, they'll gather double and then eat it the next day. Will they take free food with my very few simple requirements? That is the test. Now look at how the miracle played out in verses uh, well, look at verse 13. We read this before. The e in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So, so, so this is a once, not a only once, but this is a, a once-off miracle, the quail. He'll, he'll do it again in the book of Numbers, but, but in this instance, it's not going to be daily meat in the evenings. It is, in fact, they, they have this one occurrence of meat because of the, the overflowing grace of God. Because the, the, the manna is going to come in such a way that, that it melts away in the hot sun. So you have to gather it in the morning. But here are the people grumbling against God in the afternoon. So instead of just doing what I think a parent would do pretty reasonably and say, you're grumbling, tomorrow you can eat, go to bed hungry, don't let me hear about it, you know, wooden spoon on the bench, some kind of threat, naughty corner over here if you're that kind of parent. Uh, Gentle, persuasive parenting style. I don't know, I don't know. A threat of, you'll go to bed hungry, tomorrow you will start again. God doesn't even do that. He meets with them and says, I'll tell you what, free meat tonight, because it's too late for the bread, and in the morning, you can have free bread also. God is so gracious in his, in his, giving, in his giving, and Psalm 78 and Psalm 105 that we read in the call to worship, they both look back on this as a marvelous grace of God. Look at what Psalm 78 says, verse 27 to 28. He says, He rained meat on them like dust. That's, that's generous. That is a lot of protein. He rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the seas. Was there a vegan option? No. He let them fall in the midst of the camp. So did they even have to go hunting for them? No. All around their dwellings came the birds. So, so, so there is this occurrence that in the Sinai Peninsula, that is the, the great wilderness between Egypt and Israel and Jordan, in this area there, there is the occurrence that a few times uh, uh, every month or so, these, these tremendous amounts of, of quail birds will travel west and fly at low heights across the wilderness. And, and they, they stop every now and then, and they sort of sleep overnight and then fly off again in the morning. But it's the account of the, the hunters and gatherers in the area that when they're very tired, these birds can just be caught like chickens. That you can just walk up to them, grab one of them, and throw them on the barbie. Or that even if they are flying, they had certain uh, ways of being able to pull a net up from the ground and just catch hundreds of them. And so here are these birds. Now, whether they're raining like dust because God's just that, you know, it's like hitting a glass wall in the ceiling and down they fall, or whether they're flying on the ground and being caught, or whether they're all tied and walking literally into the pots of the Jews, we don't know. But God has made it so easy for them that they get to just eat and enjoy the meat in the afternoon on a barbecue. But there's more. There's the free meat on the, in the evening, and then in the morning comes the manna. We see in verse uh, 13, Dew lay around the camp, and verse 14 says, Once the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Uh, 
Basically, we don't know exactly whether this was coriander seed type things because it was little tiny beads, or whether this was actually, uh, when it says flake-like things, whether it was little, uh, uh, little uh, uh, flakes of, that could fit in your palm, or, or whether it meant it was flaky, but it was sheets of, and so you've got sort of a kind of like puff pastry uh, uh, sections that are in large amounts that you could take and break up and put into a bucket. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was some kind of sheeting that would lay across the ground as the cold morning dew was lifted, as the, the sun started to rise, the dew would rise, and under it, this, this white sheet across the ground as far as, as far as the eye could see, enough to feed a million people 2.2 liters per person every day. That, that's, an, that's an oma, a tenth of an ephah, just for your reference. The 2.2 liter buckets per person every single day in the camp of, of over a million. And so this, this flaky thing is all over the ground. We learned later in verse 31 that it was, it's like a wafer, which, which to us sounds like the cheap stuff you serve for maybe a, a budget communion or maybe if, if it's at a, at a kids club thing and you don't want to spend too much. And so it's just, it's wafers that you get instead of more substantial biscuits or loaves. But in their day, wafers were actually the luxurious thing. Everybody could just float, throw some flour and water, beat it together and throw it onto a pan and make some bread. But the really, the, the luxurious, sort of the bougie way of eating was to have the, 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 the flaky, delicious wafers. And then it says also in verse 31 that it tasted like honey. Now, honey was as sweet as you could get a naturally occurring thing in the old world before we invented refined sugar to the great... <sighs> swelling of all of us. Without refined sugar, natural occurring honey was the sweetest thing you could have. So in other words, when it says it's a flaky wafer that tasted like honey, it's basically saying the most delicious biscuit you've ever had. And that would be if you just take it up and eat it off the ground. But we know that the process was sort of meant to be that they would take it, and it says so in the passage, they would, they would take it, they would beat it, they would add it to something else, they could boil it, they could bake it and put it in a stew, whatever they want to do, and, and so they could make this manna into all sorts of breads and foods. But it was this delicious, sweet, flaky thing, crust that came from uh, heaven in the mornings, and by the time the sun came up, it tells us that it would melt it. So if you're like, a, there's only one six on the clock, and that's p.m., and anything a.m. just doesn't exist, you know, if you're like the, the sleep-in type, guess what? You don't get fed that day. You, you, it, it, yes, it was free, but it wasn't just a hand. You had to get up, you had to forage, you had to go and grab it for yourself. And then we see here uh, that it was called, uh, uh, well, it's called manna. But look at what they say in, um, in verse uh, 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to Moses, uh, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Now, this is a little bit funny because the word manna is the same word, as far as scholars can tell, as the word that they would have been saying for what is it? So they name it, what the? Like that's the name of it is now, what? So, so this, this kind of, I, I love that the question that, that's asked, it reminds, as an Australian, it reminds me of Daryl Kerrigan from the castle. Every good husband needs to take a, take a note from this passage and the apostle Daryl Kerrigan. When you sit down for a meal and your wife brings it and lays it down and the kids are around the table, the first question always has to be, no matter how obvious the meal is, the first question is always, as Daryl Kerrigan taught us, Darling, what do you call this, love? And she'll say something like, come on, it's, it's shepherd's pie, or it's beef stew, or it's whatever. And you go, oh, no, but, but it's what you do with it, love. Now, now, why would you go out and spend $50 on a meal where you can stay at home and eat this? Right? That's, that's just brownie points for the gents. Uh, but, but that's what the Israelites do. They go and they start eating and go, wow, what do you call this, Moses? And that, that literally becomes the name of it. What? You, this, this sort of, it almost sounds like a Monty Python or, or, or like a, a bit of an English sketch show kind of a scene that it happens. You know, uh, what is this? What? What? Okay, let's all go eat what? And, and it just becomes the, the name of it. I do think this would have made it very easy for mums, right? Every afternoon when the kids are coming back in from playing, mum, what's for dinner? Correct. 
Uh, what are we eating? What is what we're eating? That's correct. We're eating what? Good on you. That's it. Every day for 40 years, they, the mums here had to get, start getting pretty creative. Pretty creative with what they do with this what bread. Nonetheless, they, this was their command to do this. Every day, gather 2.2 liters in buckets per person on average. So, of course, the verses 17 and 18 tell us that it just ended up working out beautifully. The dads would have 2.2 liters for themselves. They would gather 2.2 liters for their infants and one for their wife. And, but eventually, for every, t- every tent, it always ended averaging out. And so it was the perfect provision of God, this average of one omer per person per day. <laughs> and then on the sixth day, we're told here, uh, in verse, tw- um, verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will and boil what you will boil. All that is left over, lay it aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning. And behold, as Moses, just as Moses had said, it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Verse 25, Moses said to them, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it out in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now we will go deeper into the realities and the commandments and the reasons of the Sabbath command of God when we get to it in the fourth commandment, when we go one by one through the Ten Commandments. We will get there. But at this point, it is suffice to say that there is already a principle of seventh day rest for the people of God since the beginning of creation when God himself rested. And so God is reminding them here, you have a day off tomorrow, you'll get double the amount on on Fridays so that you don't have to gather anything on Saturdays. And and I love that verse... um, Verse 22 says, and all the congregational leaders, maybe the 70 elders or whoever else, they all came and grabbed Moses on that Friday morning and said, it's day six and there's double the food. Now, now Moses, just newsflash, would you believe it? God didn't lie. That's, write that down, Moses, please. God was right. He did what he said and it worked out. And Moses, of course, is, yeah, this is what the Lord commanded. Let's, let's stop being surprised by God's amazing, even miraculous provision. He promised it. The greatest impossibility in all the universe is that God's word would fail. It is impossible, a logical impossibility that God's promises would ever fail. And so here they are, reaping the benefits of it. But we have said earlier, this is not a day of sunshine and roses purely. This is a day when the people of God fail a very simple test. Will they be able to walk in the 600 plus commandments that he gives to them as he makes them the most blessed nation on earth? Well, let's see. Look at the rebellion that they they an act over in verse 19 to 21. Moses said, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. In other words, he's teaching them here what will become a segment of Jesus' own prayer in the Lord's Prayer. He is teaching them that God's provision meets all of our needs day by day. Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And if you worry and think, and of course that speaks of of provision and that speaks of enough grace to get through today's temptations and that speaks of enough faith to rely on God's promises and enough of his protection to be alive by the time evening comes, we pray, God, give to me today enough to get through this twist of the earth. That's all we need. Give me today this daily bread. Now, if you stress and think, but what will happen tomorrow? Will I have enough of God's grace tomorrow? That is what Jesus calls anxiety for tomorrow that adds no grace for tomorrow, adds no time to tomorrow, adds no blessing to tomorrow, just makes the hair fall out of your head. That's anxiety, sinful anxiety. And so we're taught, rather, rest on God, pray to him today's daily bread. Tomorrow we'll pray today's daily bread because we can trust that tomorrow God will be the same. He is the God who is the same yesterday and today 
and forever. Which means we can look at this picture of the, of the manna provision every day and they were not allowed to gather double because that would be to show that they did not trust that God would fulfill his promise for tomorrow. And every day that went by, they, they would gather it and have another testimony that he fulfilled his promise. But if they were to then go and gather even more for tomorrow just in case, they would be sinning against all of the testimony of God's faithfulness. God is good. He will be with us tomorrow. He will give to us what we need each passing day. He is a merciful God, knowing our needs, providing them before we need them. And here was the lesson for them. Relying on God for each day's daily bread. But look at verse 20. You could just guess this. Like, like if I was sitting there with Moses as he wrote down verse 20, I'd say, hey, hey, uh, hey, champ. We can just assume this line. You don't even need to really write that. We've got to know this generation of Israelites pretty well. We can just all guess unanimously they didn't listen to Moses. That's, that's just the refrain here. We're used to it. And yet, Moses writes down the obvious. The thing we all could have seen coming. But they did not listen to Moses. Moses, uh, sorry, some of them, not all of them, but some of them left part of their manna until the morning, and overnight it bred worms and stank. Maggots and a stenchy tent is what you get for dishonoring and distrusting God's promise in this moment. And Moses was angry with them. Why do you think he was angry with them? Not just because, because they disobeyed, but because he knew what this meant. A failed test. He knew now. This is the prophecy already affirmed for Moses. When we get to Sinai and I go up and I receive the law and I come back down, 20 ephahs of gold is my bet that I'll find them doing something sinful. And what does he find them doing? Worshipping a golden calf that his own brother made for them. He knows now. Now that, now that this is not very promising at all. Oh God, this is your people. These are your covenant people. You're going to bring the Messiah out of these people. You're going to use them over, over 1,500 years in the land. And you've said you're going to punish them if they disobey and bless them if they obey. And they can't even collect the right amount of bread. It's not a promising sign for the prophet of God, Moses, as he looks over this sinful people. Or it happens again with the Sabbath. Look at, uh, look at verse 27. On the sixth day, everybody had enough. The congregation leaders got excited. They told Moses. He told them, that's right, you have enough, so don't go out collecting tomorrow. Eat it tomorrow morning in your tent without having to do the extra labor on the Sabbath rest day. Verse 27. But on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Like, they're surprised that God's word was true. And the Lord said to Moses, who wouldn't have seen it because he was over in his tent doing the right thing. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, see, he says, verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in your place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people went back. And they rested on the seventh day. God's people had failed once again. They, 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 had, they failed the test by failing to obey. And so we just now, from here on in, it's going to go badly for them. The more laws God gives, the more they show they're unable to obey. They're a hard-hearted generation. They're a faithless, great, uh, ungrateful generation who will continually test God. The lesson here that was told, and, and then they were told, keep some of it and put it in the ark when they build it and keep it in the temple once that's built and put it in the sanctuary until then. That was all so that they would have a continual testimony and a reminder, not just of the bread. It wasn't just so that they have a generation by generation reminder of the bread. It is actually so that they will have a reminder of the lesson of the bread. So that when they see the bread, 
in the, in the ark as it's being carried around or as it's showcased, they would remember not just the manna, but also the lesson behind the manna. Now, what is the lesson behind the manna? Moses gives us a perfect inspired account and an explanation in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says to the people, God humbled you and let you hunger. He humbled you and let you hunger. And then he fed you with manna, which you didn't know what it was. Neither did your fathers know. And he did this so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What was the lesson of the manna? We might jump a bit too, too shallowly and say, oh, oh, the lesson was not, just, was not just the miracle bread. It was that God would provide. But that's not even enough. In fact, the lesson is not that God will provide bread or miracle bread. The miracle bread was a sign that you need more than bread to survive. You need more than bodily health. You need more than physical food to keep you alive. What you need is, in fact, more than anything in this world can give. You need the words that come from God. You need the word of God in the scripture. You need the word of God through his anointed prophets that were then written down in scripture. You need the words from heaven, the food from heaven. That's what you need to survive in God's blessing much more than food. But this miracle of the bread became a constant pointer sign. Every time they ate the miracle bread, they were supposed to remind themselves and be reminded we need to listen to God's word. Because if we go out and gather this manna and we don't listen to his word, it'll be maggots and stinky by the morning. If we go out and we eat this bread, but we continually refuse to receive God's word, he'll kill us in the wilderness. The lesson was you must receive God's word for your life. Now, how, how familiar to you is it, that phrase, that, 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 that refrain, man does not live by bread alone? Maybe some of you don't even know it was in the Old Testament. You know it as the quotation of Jesus during his wilderness struggles. And, and he picks it up, and Jesus had learned the lesson. He was, he was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect Jew. He had read his Torah. He had known the lesson, the story of the manna in the wilderness and the faithless generation growing up. He had imbibed that lesson so that when he was in their place, 40 days, not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and hungering in the wilderness, just like they were, as the perfect Israelite, in his hunger, he did not grumble against God. In fact, he, he, he didn't even think up a sinful scenario in his mind. For him, it required the testing of the devil to introduce sinful notions. And the devil himself came to Jesus and told him. Basically, you can, you can imagine the conversation going something like, hey, come on, God's people hungry in the wilderness for a period of 40? You're here? Look, there's rocks. You shouldn't go hungry. They got miracle bread. Why don't you flex your God powers and give yourself some miracle bread up out of the stones? The devil knew that Jesus was himself God with the exact power that Yahweh had to create manna in the wilderness. So Jesus had the power to create bread for himself. And Jesus said, Jesus showed that he had learned the lesson from the hungering generation in the wilderness. He knew that the lesson wasn't that if you grumble, you get bread. He knew that the lesson was whether I starve or eat, my main feasting, my main diet must be whatever God says. I rely on God. I trust God for whatever, but I will not grumble and I will not cheat. Therefore, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And eventually, after the devil leaves him, he has the same experience as those in the wilderness, and the angels bring him food. But it's not only that period in Jesus' life that teaches us the lesson. In fact, that's him fulfilling the lesson and, and obeying the lesson and passing the test where the Israelites failed the test. But there's even more to it. 
Jesus adds another layer of meaning on top of the manna story in John chapter 6 when we see another painfully repetitive, perfect mirror image of this Exodus 16 story. In John chapter 6, the people have, have followed out the prophet into a, into a barren place, right? They, they follow Jesus, not Moses. They come out and they're listening to him teach. And it gets late in the day. I'm, I'm sure you've at least heard this story in Sunday school. And Jesus gathers uh, whatever uh, the little boy could give, which was uh, five loaves, two fish. He prays over it and multiplies it and everybody eats to their full. Miracle bread from a prophet. Isn't that good? Mirror image story. Jesus leaves the next day, he goes across the, the lake back to the west. The people wake up, they're hungry, they would really appreciate free bread again. They, they get on boats, they follow him over, and they find him teaching in a synagogue. And what's the text that he's teaching? This very text. He, he's, he's preaching on and he's teaching on the prophetic uh, 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 remembrances of the wilderness eating of the manna. And he tells them, you know, as they're like questioning him, why, why don't you do something for us? You, you should give us bread again. And he tells them, didn't you learn the lesson? God gave them bread to eat, but they ate it and died. Here's what Jesus said to them. In John chapter 6, verse <clears throat> Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the Jews gather and they, and they want food from Jesus again. And he says to them, as they ask for more food, and they say, you know, Moses did a pretty cool thing. If you're better than Moses, you'll do a pretty cool thing too. I, don't, I double dare you. That's what they did. They double dared Jesus. You, know, you wouldn't do it. You're scared. You know, you, Moses would do it. They're trying to challenge or bait Jesus into proving himself better than Moses. And he says, uh, excuse me, it wasn't Moses that gave them bread. It was me. It was Yahweh. The Father gave them bread, and the Father has given them bread again. I was with the Father giving them the bread. I was in the cloud as they ate their bread, and here now I am among you, and I am the bread that has come down. Look at, look at what he says in, verse, in verse, four, uh, verse 35 of chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or in verse 47, he goes on. Oh, sorry, verse 41. The Jews grumbled against Jesus. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against God. And here again, as God's prophet and God in flesh, the Jews grumble against Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What a beautiful simplicity the gospel holds out to us. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and uh, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying the lesson of the manna is not that the next time a great prophet comes, demand free bread. The lesson of the manna is that whenever you see God giving miraculous bread, remember that we must listen to the word and receive whatever he says. And so now Jesus is saying, here's, here's the free bread and here's what I say. Here's the free bread and here's the word to receive. The word to receive after the free meal is that God gives free grace in me, the bread from heaven. I am God, Jesus was saying. Come down from heaven into humanity, born as a baby, never sinning, right up to my adult life, teaching perfectly, being the perfect Jew, the perfect prophet, the better Moses, a perfect teacher of the word of God. But, he says, there's more to it than that. 
I'm not just better than Moses because I give you lots of bread. I'm not just better than Moses because I'm perfect. I'm not just better than the Jews because I never sinned. I give to you a better substance and, and benefit in the bread. Jesus says, my flesh is the bread that is given for the life of the world. Do you remember what they had to do with the, with the manna that fell? They, they didn't generally just take it up and eat it. It had to go through a process of preparation and cooking. They had to take it, grind it down, break it down, so that they could make something better with it, and so it was with Jesus. It was not enough that he came down and taught, came down and gave miracles, came down and showed an example and lived a perfect life. Rather, his body had to be given as a sacrifice to be beaten, ground and destroyed so that our sins could be paid for. Jesus' flesh, his bodily life, his human essence was given as a sacrifice on Calvary. When he was killed by the Romans and blamed by the Jews, what was really happening was that God was turning the, the, the raw substance of the bread or the, or the flour or the wheat or the grain, Jesus says in John 12. I'm a piece of grain. I have to die to give life to others. God was taking the, the ingredients and he was, he was grinding it so that he could prepare for us a loaf of bread, eh? an eternal life meal held out in the gospel. Now, if all of that imagery of bread and Jesus is all too much, Jesus simplifies it and says, just as, just as eternal life bread would have to be eaten to benefit you, so also the gospel has to be believed to benefit you. I'm the Savior. I've died for your sins. I will rise again for your eternal life. I am the gift of God to all of the world of sinners who do not deserve this grace, but I held out the grace of God. The one way that you eat of the benefits of the gospel, the one way that you benefit of the graces that God holds out in Jesus is by believing. And if you believe and you trust, you have eternal you don't have to do anything. You don't have to offer anything. You don't have to provide anything. If you eat by believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 55 says. Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy wine and milk. Without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me so that your soul may live. This is the essence of what Jesus is saying. If, if you were ever invited to a king's banquet, if ever you were called, come whoever is hungry and come and feast. Come and, come and be filled. Come and quench your thirst. Come without any dollars, without any money, without anything to trade. Come and eat of my table. And on your way in, you are scoffing your mouth filled with dust and crumbs and scraps from the side of the road so that you could get to the king's table and say, O oh, king... I filled myself. I don't need your free food. I belong with you because I have filled my own belly. In that moment, you would be uninvited. You would be taken and thrown out for you have insulted the king so much as to eat other things as a, as a substitute for what he offered when his invitation was specific. Come freely eat. That's all. That's the offer of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon told the story of, of back in the 1800s in England, in London where he was ministering, there was a very famous landscape painter. And he loved to paint sections and famous skylines of London. And there was a particular street where there was a well-known street sweeper, a man who, was, who, was, who did a tremendous job, who was well-respected by many of the people who were well-to-do in London at the time. And this painter said, I want to capture the likeness of this street, and I can't do it without that street sweeper. But I want to get his details right, and, and I can't just sit in the middle of the London street and paint him. So he went up to him and he invited him, please, I want to paint you. I want to capture your likeness and put it into one of my grand paintings. May you come to my studio at this time, on this date, and I will paint you and capture your likeness just as you are. I want to capture the street sweeper. And a few days later, 
at the appointed time, the painter heard the knock on the door and he answered it. And, he, and, and who, 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 who welcomed him or who said hello to him was this well-dressed, cleaned up, suit and tie, fellow walking with a cane. Not a broom, not a dusty face, not his old work clothes to be seen. And he says, what are you here for? And the gentleman says, well, I'm, I'm the street sweeper. I heard you wanted to capture my likeness, and so here I am for my best presentation that you might paint me. And in the instant, the painter said, this is not how I wanted you. You serve no benefit to me. You disqualify yourself from the invitation because you've gone and cleaned yourself up. I wanted you as the street sweeper. I wanted you as the guy who's dirty and mucky and miry on the street. That's who I wanted. I, I take back my invitation now that you are so polished. And Spurgeon says, so it is with the gospel. That when Jesus says, sinners may come to me, people who are hungry may come to me, it serves us nothing, it sends our souls to hell if we say, well then I better fill myself up a little before I come to the king. Well then I, I better polish myself up and clean up my life and get a good Christian garb about me before I come to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, the offer is for food. So if you're hungry, that's a plus. The offer is for life for sinners, forgiveness for the guilty. If you're guilty and you're hungry and you're a sinner, then Jesus says, perfect. I don't have any system, Jesus says. I don't have any system where I give you some laws, expect some obedience, and then I'll take you to heaven. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'll take you with me only if you believe and believe alone. Do not bring works, do not bring deeds, do not bring your reputation. Throw it all at the door. Come to the table of Jesus and eat and receive eternal life by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the gift of life that is your son. We praise you and exalt you and thank you for the fact that in our hunger and in our lostness and in our guilt, you gave a righteous perfect sacrifice. You gave us eternal life bread so that as we believe, as we, as we acknowledge his claims to be God, as we acknowledge Jesus' claims to be perfect, as we acknowledge Jesus' claim to be sent from heaven to save sinners, as we acknowledge what the apostles preached, that Jesus died for our sins to pay our punishment and that he rose again to secure eternal life, as we acknowledge those things and believe them in our heart so our sins are forgiven and our souls receive that bread that gives to them eternal life. Father God, I pray that you would nourish us once again, those who, those who have believed, those who have received Jesus but continually fall back on a process of trying to impress you to feel forgiven, would you remind them that it is a free meal given for beggars, given for the hungry, and given for sinners? For those of us who are not believers in our midst, Lord God, would you please give to them for the first time a taste for the things of Jesus, a desire for that which they have, they've thrown off and they've despised and they've disliked for so long, the gospel, repentance, holiness, your law, being at church among the saints, those things which they've disliked so often, would you give to them a taste for those things, a longing for those things, and ultimately a longing for eternal life through Jesus Christ. Father God, would you glorify your son as the greater Moses, the perfect Israelite, and the great, the great shepherd of the sheep who has fed us his eternal food for the benefit of our souls. We pray, Lord God, that we would believe this, that we would glorify you, and that you would be exalted in our midst today. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.